I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. It was hard to keep my own body and sexual behaviors under wraps. And so when I realized that it was also happening for her, it actually just stressed me out because I was like, oh, God, now we're both going to get caught being gay. You know, and it was um, it took me a long time to like take comfort in that. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Thomas LeBlanc. I'm Trana Winter. That was Sarah Quinn you just heard of Tegan and Sarah fame. I am so excited to have them on the show. I mean, Tegan and Sarah, it's crazy. They've been making music for 20 years now. Juno Award winners. They've had hits on the Billboard charts, which still means something to people <laughs> like me. And they I mean, have, they're Canadian rock royalty. They have a new book. It's called High School. And they have a new record. Hey, I'm Just Like You. And there's it's so specific because they're musicians or collaborators, but they're twins. They're queer twin sisters. It's a special vibe. It's a special vibe. I don't have siblings, so anytime the question of siblings is brought up, I'm like looking at people like they're aliens. But I'm the alien because I'm the only child. And well, I feel there's like a lot I'm of no... only children. Really? And more and more of them. I think this, right. especially this next generation, it's going to be a lot of only children. Yeah, maybe. Trina, I don't think I told you, but I was almost an older brother. What do you mean? Did I ever tell you that? No. I remember when I was in kindergarten, starting school, um, my mom was pregnant. I was told I was going to have a younger sister. And and I remember in school drawing my family, because you're asked to draw your yeah. family. And I would draw my dad and my mo- my dad with like a top hat. I remember <laughs> that. <laughs> um, and then drawing me. With orange hair, of course. And I would draw my mom. And also drawing a little sister. Okay. Um, And I have to say, I was pretty excited to be an older brother. Yeah. And I I remember touching my mom's belly. And they had a name for her. Her name was Frédéric. Um, And then someday, she came back home from work. And she was no longer pregnant. I was... And they told you? They told me she had a miscarriage. Okay. Um... And that's sort of the story that registered with me. And there was never again talks of having another child in my family. So that was it. That was it. I was five the year after we moved to a new house and the year after my parents separated. So recently I was talking to to my mom about that story. And I was like, what was that about? Like, was, was that really a miscarriage? Like, what happened? And she told me she ended the pregnancy. That like I was a late all- term? No, not late okay. term. Not late term. Just like that okay. she felt that she, like she they couldn't do it. And right. my parents separated two years later. Right. Um, so I think it was sort of all in the, in just the realization that maybe she was no longer going to be with my dad a few. Right. I, feel, I, I don't think she knew when, but I think she knew that something was going to end this. Um, my life would have been radically different. So different. And her life too. And our family. You wouldn't be the same. It's crazy oh. the effect that yeah. when I think of how much who I am is because of my sister and our relationship, like I can't even imagine. I think I would have been a really good brother. I'm sure. I think I really, really well, been a really brother. Well, you're a really good friend. Yeah. There's this alternate reality where 
I'm an older brother. I have a younger sister. She's 29 or 30, and we have a relationship. And I love these moments. These, I mean, it's super corny, but these sliding, sliding doors door moments. Moment. And, and just to have someone else to, like, you know, bounce these crazy stories and to have been with someone else through all of this you know I have to say that's really the biggest thing it's like I don't even know what the word for it is but it's like especially because me and my sister are so close in age we were processing a lot of the same things at the same time on the same emotional level right and I feel like there's just this shared memory bank that only she and I have access to and We can just see everything in there and everything that has happened. And what's crazy, too, is that there are things that we remember so differently. Oh, really? Yeah. That would be interesting. Sometimes I think my sister makes things up (laughs) because sometimes our memories are just like so far off. But I'm so grateful that like because it becomes this nonverbal thing. I can just look at my sister and I know exactly what she's thinking. Well, that's interesting because there's, for me, no one in the world, maybe my mom a little bit like this, but it's not the same thing. But there's no one in the world that I can look at and be like, I know we've been through this together. Um, Since I was a really young child, I remember thinking like, oh, I'm the only one who will have to take care of my parents when they get older. Yeah, I'm lucky they had me super young, so they're still very young. But there's still this sort of parents side of every me, only like... child I know brings that up the fact that one day they're going to be faced with elderly parents yeah. on their own yeah I'm so grateful that I have a sister <laughs> like selfishly especially for that because my sister is just a better caregiver than I am um really you can say that because I panic like when someone right. I know and there's been moments in our mom's life where you know things have been bad and my sister always rises to the occasion mm-hmm. but I just spiral and I get sad and I get overwhelmed by what's happening and I'm like I'm not the best in a crisis honestly I'm not yeah I get it my parents were both sick in the last couple of years and it was like the, the there were moments where I felt like shutting down and escaping and leaving and the thing that's great with my parents is they're, they never ask me to do the conventional thing. They've never asked me, of course, like I'm, I'm a gay man, so I'm most likely not going to have a child. And they've always accepted that. And they've, they've never put on me the pressure of being a good son, you know, like showing right. up. And so that's fine. But there's, there's this But do you think that's because pressure. they feel like they haven't been the best parents? Ooh. I feel We like... don't have to go too into it, but I know that like – you know, I think that there's something that you didn't get from your parents that you wanted. Yeah, for sure. They know that they weren't conventional parents. Like, right. my mom had me. She was 20. I'm 34. When my mom was my age, I was 14. And I came right. out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's it's the dynamic was just radically different. Yeah. Also, like, I had multiple step-parents, like, and, they, and they're aware that that really hurt me. And they even had partners who had children. So I've had step-brothers and step-sisters right. who were in my life for a few years, and I've never really considered them siblings because they had a different mom or dad. But just one example is I've spent Christmas in so many different families. Yeah. And they know that. 
You know, like, and I know that that's why they don't bother me with family right. stuff. They don't like, have expectations. They know that. At least like, they're reasonable. I think so. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I've had so many of these relationships in my life that it's hard for me. Like the concept of family is so foreign, which is why I need a, a chosen family. That's so interesting. I think that like, even though I grew up with a sister who I loved more than anyone, it hasn't really affected the way that I've built my chosen family. Like it's still... I think I've just gone through life always with the same approach of like just being very selective about who's in my oh, life. Oh, there is an entry exam to get yeah, in your life. Yeah, there is. <laughs> and even when you do, like you won't mix with the other people in my life. Like, yeah, sure. you know, I, like I, each I relationship, because I think that I'm just someone who really thrives on one-on-one connection. Right. You know, or I've like very a, small groups, I've you know, never been a squad person. No, because and I think maybe that's because I grew up at home with just a mom and a sister. Like we're just three people, you know, it's not like this giant family of like 10 siblings. So I think that I just feel the most safe and the most comfortable and the most in control right. when I'm like, it's just one on one. Trana, you and I are obsessed with female icons from the 90s. Forever and always. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I read Tegan and Sarah's High School, their new, I want to say memoir, but it's more than a memoir. It's like this account of their teenage years, and it's written uh, alternating their point of view. So one chapter is Tegan, one chapter is Sarah, and they sort of discover life, they discover love, they discover their own queerness, Um I was flabbergasted to find out that their Calgary, because they're from Calgary, they're from Calgary, was the coolest place in the world in the nineties. Their high well, school. Well, I don't know about that. They make it sound, but they do make it. They sound make cool. it sound. It's like, cooler than we would have thought. Yeah, but to be honest, like I wanted to be there. Like <laughs> reading high school. Um, so Tegan and Sarah, they discover grunge, but also they discover the rave scene in Calgary. And I, I was a raver in high school. I don't know if you know that. Wow. And uh, <laughs> it's just so sad. I really connected to that experience of, of being 15, 16, 17, and then going to these like all night parties. And um, Sarah told us about what it was like for them as teenagers trying to figure out these different scenes. The one thing that was interesting about the punk versus rave culture, you know, Tegan and I were also kind of punk kids, but I found it really sexist. I found it very white and I found it very, um, you know, about men and pushing and moshing. And there was a sort of violence to it that initially I was sort of attracted to and then really immediately sort of pulled away from, especially as I started to figure out that I was queer. And one of the things about the early days of rave culture in in Calgary was that it felt really feminine. It felt very, um, it felt very gay. It felt very queer. You know, it was the first time I remember going to places where I saw men. Um, you know, kissing or touching each other in ways that, you know, I assumed was sexual, but also just felt friendly and open. And it wasn't about posturing. And it was a place where um, rave culture was the first time that people complimented us on our clothes. <laughs> like it was the, Instead of being like, oh, my God, are you wearing your dad's pants? Those are so huge, which they were my dad's pants. But they were like, it was like people being like, where did you get those? And those look great on you. And you're cool. And it was about being original. It wasn't about you know, conforming, it was about being being different from everybody and, and that was celebrated. So yeah, I I don't I'm not saying that the rave culture in Calgary was 
um, was huge or, you know, you know, maybe maybe it was cooler in, in Toronto or Montreal or whatever, but it was like, but it saved us and it gave us a place to like really figure ourselves out. Something I really loved about the book is how, well, you alternate chapters and you discover queerness in a really tender, beautiful, natural way. Mm-hmm. It never feels like something you're necessarily struggle with. I think you struggle with the environment. You struggle with the homophobia around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you also write quite beautifully about how you discover shame in that process, but still queerness is fundamentally something quite beautiful from an early point. Are you still in touch, Sarah, with Naomi and Tegan mm-hmm. with Alex, your first loves and your first like queer partners? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's very it's a very like gay girl thing to say, but we're like, yeah, of course. They're like our best friends still. Are you Is that their real names? No. no. Okay. <laughs> Every, everyone's identities in the book were were sort of masked, but we joke that we called everybody and said, "Hey, we sold this book proposal and so if you haven't told your parents that you experimented with drugs or with um with the same sex, you should get right with God." <laughs> you know. Um there were some uh Waves of nervousness, I think, for from everybody in our lives. But I think everyone understood that the, the real purpose to Sarah and I writing this book was about sharing a really important part of our story. I think we, we glamorize and idolize people in the public sphere. You know, artists like us, we get put up on a stage or a pedestal. We get referred to as icons or, you know, whatever. Like all these these silly things. And, and, and while we appreciate that and we appreciate our success and how from the outside it must look like our lives are perfect and we just love ourselves and we just embrace <laughs> ourselves fully, that that isn't the full narrative. That's not the full story. And that even now we still struggle with homophobia inside and out. And um, we wanted to share the part of our journey that wasn't easy, that wasn't up on a pedestal. And we wanted to remind everybody that that we went through that too. And we hoped that that would bring comfort to people who grew up during that time, that their experience, whatever it was, was, was normal. I loved the way you phrased it too, that it wasn't necessarily that we were struggling with our queerness. It was the things that were happening around us. And my, my instinct is almost to be like, no, but wasn't I? But like, you're, I think you're right. In so many ways, those moments, I mean, I know for myself, when I was sharing that first, you know, blooming of, of love with um, Naomi, like when I, when I had my first real like falling in love and, you know, there was, there was like this wonderful connectivity of like realizing like you're gonna eventually you're going to be this thing and you're going to have these relationships that are going to be so wonderful like I never wished I was straight I never remember thinking like if only I really wanted to like suck Cameron's D or whatever like I just was like I just was like well there there are boys around there are boys around and they were lovely boys and actually I mean the truth is is that it's like I my my sexuality my queerness is totally on a spectrum and I'm not not interested in 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 boys you know and I wasn't not interested in boys in high school it was just that oh my god it's like you know that first time I got together with a girl I was like oh this I love Bruce I love your stepdad <laughs> um, I've had many step parents in my life many uh-huh. stepdads many stepmoms um, just tell me about Bruce well, I want to say like we had a, I mean our biological dad is still very close to us as well. And my mom is just phenomenal and amazing. And we feel like we publicly have to constantly apologize (laughs) because the three years we were in high school, she worked nights, so she wasn't around as much, but she was a huge influence on us as well. But, But this Bruce really is the star during this era that we're talking about. You know, he he came into our lives when we were seven and he was always really fun and really engaged with Sarah and I. And but high school was when he really had to sort of step up and shine. And and he wasn't always a great parent. I mean, he definitely led us 
us sort of have the run of the house and do what we wanted. And when my mom read the book, her first comment was, I thought that Bruce was around a lot more. And, you know, and I feel really <laughs> guilty for not being there. You know, so we were kind of... He really respected us and trusted us and yeah. he shouldn't have. But, yeah. you know, he <laughs> no, did. No, but he, you know, he, he's, he was sort of, he was sort of on the fly. But um, him and I had a conversation early on. There's obviously a story in the book where I talk about how he had called Kurt Cobain a word that I won't use on the radio right now. Um, oh, it's, he calls him a fag. We can he say calls it. him a fag. Okay. Yeah. It's in the book. <laughs> it's in the book. Um, but he used this word to... Tegan and I are trying to bring back Dyke. Like we're just like we're like all these all this this whole generation of women who were so badass and so cool and so butch and it was such a great word and similar to how we sort of like reclaimed queer. I've started to think like you know like I I wish I were a dyke but I'm not like I try to be but like I kind of am like yeah, you're just like I have asthma and I just like small wrists. And I like, don't know what know, any of like, that I means. Just, but anyway, point but is I can't just, operate. It's just beautiful that Bruce circles back and apologizes. Exactly. So he yeah, so in the story he he refers to Kurt Cobain as a fag because he, I've got all these posters on my wall of Kurt and Kurt wears eyeliner in a lot of them and anyway, um but I asked Bruce if it was okay to tell the story because within, you know, a 2-hour fight that him and I had, a very emotional fight where we really kind of got into it Bruce kind of came around he ended up becoming a really big fan of Nirvana and apologized for for using that word and you know it was an important moment that sticks out in my mind because you know Bruce is a big guy a construction worker hockey player grew up in a rural part of Vancouver Island and you know he had really 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 changed and evolved and grown up by meeting my mom who was a feminist and outspoken and political and you know but he still he still made mistakes and I, I think you know I was really struggling with my own identity and so to have him use that word really made me feel like afraid that if I were different and he found out about it that he wouldn't love me and I don't think that he knew at that time that Sarah and I were queer I don't know if he had an inkling even but I think he sensed that my emotion was linked to something deeper but did you talk about that with each other because it's it's that's it the whole book the whole book it sounds like it's you're in two separate lanes we are Okay. I think that's part of what motivated us also to write the story was this, these misconceptions that we'd sort of been attempting to to correct over the last 20 years. This idea that Sarah and I are best friends who tell each other everything, who mm. are traveling the world, you know, finding comfort in the other. And, and in some cases, we do tell each other a lot. We I've witnessed Sarah's um, almost her entire life, really, you know, um, but... You know, Sarah lived in Montreal for 13 years. We do have different likes and dislikes. We do have different identities. We do have very different interior lives. And I think writing the book, even we were surprised at how much we hadn't shared and how much of our experience didn't reflect the others. Like, you know, when I got together with Alex, it was like a magical experience. And to read Sarah's side of the book and and some of the hardship that she went through and some of the heartbreak with uh, I'm trying to remember their students. Naomi. Naomi and Zoe. (laughs) (laughs) That 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 was something that I had missed. And, you know, I, I get, it was a very therapeutic um, and cathartic experience for Sarah and I to write this book because I, th- I think for me, I've sat next to Sarah for 20 years in interviews where she's uh, talked about some of the issues she had around coming out. And, and I, I, some of that was lost on me. So, yeah, so I, th- I think for us, part of writing the book was just about blowing up some of those misconceptions and putting in our own words what we're really like. You know, to this day, I think some people imagine that Tegan and Sarah must live together. Like, we must have a house <laughs> with bunk beds. And we didn't share, when we were two years old, we got our own bedrooms. Like, that that says everything. You know, we're, we're really, you know, two very distinct people. I think also being able to tell, like, I don't know how it was for the both of you in your journeys to coming out and talking about your experiences, but... I know that for me, 
to tell somebody would have required me being able to accept it about myself. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't talk to Tegan or my mom or my, you know, even to some degree. I mean, I was having this like full on relationship and eventually, you know, had another relationship with another girl. I never used those words. I mean, we didn't talk about ourselves using the kinds of language that no. people have access to now. Like I talk to like, you know, we don't even say teenagers the word now homosexual or gay in our journals. Like when I was reading no. them, you know, I'm talking to Alex about how profound our connection is and how much I care for her. But I then will say, we'll graduate and we'll go on to have boyfriends and we'll just continue being best friends. But like best friends obviously means more than that. <laughs> but like, you know, we just didn't have any of that language. No, no. I love that there's, there was an absence of that language. You know, there's a kind of freedom in that instead of like having to like really put yourselves in these boxes, you yeah. know, that I think those boxes might have been a bit more intense back in the 90s. But now I think people are, you know, using less and less labels for themselves, yeah. which is great. Yeah. Um, do you feel like there's a unique tension that twins live, especially identical twins in what you're describing? Like you don't have bunk bags, you don't live together. <laughs> so there is this, you know, want and need for establishing your own identity. But then there's also this like kind of codependency and can't live without each other feeling at the same time. Have you felt that tension? Yeah. You know, I mean, I could just talk about this forever because I think the, you know, one of the things that was really uh, profound for me anyways, and I, you know, Tegan had a different experience of our, you know, not just our identity, but as we started to develop our music career in high school, you know, the the sort of like initial wave of interest and excitement and really like the early development of like creating a fan base and some of the some of the good things and bad things that come from being a musician and a public person they immediately turned me off because it reminded me of things that had bothered me about being twins that lack of boundary that people would come up to us and touch us when we were little kids or you know stare at us or ask us weird questions about ourselves like i was both powerful like it was a, like being a twin was powerful and if i wanted to be powerful and use it in certain ways i could and but there was also this kind of balance of of things that made me really uncomfortable and feel really vulnerable and actually that's how i feel about being a public person i feel like it, there is a power in it and it's also like you know addictive and a sort of like exciting narcotic to be like you know have people stare at you and applaud and be interested and curious in your stories and the things that you are sharing but there's also something that is really overwhelming about having people be so invested in you and so like you know i think I think even, you know, around our sexuality, you know, I didn't take any kind of comfort in the fact that I knew Tegan was gay. I mean, I again, I didn't we didn't talk about these things and I and I didn't really have confirmation that Tegan was also um, involved with with girls until, you know, almost the end of high school. But like in no way from the time I was like a little kid, I knew something was different about me. So I didn't feel comfortable with my body. I really felt uncomfortable when I hit puberty. And then it was like, oh, God, now I like girls. There was no part of me that was like, well, at least I've got Tegan. She's going through all this, too. <laughs> like what I actually often felt was it was almost like I was dealing with it inside and out. I was watching Tegan also deal with it. And that made it really hard for me. And so in some ways I resented her. And she also was like it was hard to keep keep my own body and sexual identity and sexual behaviors under wraps. And so when I realized that it was also happening for her, it actually just stressed me out because I was like, oh, God, now we're both going to get caught being gay, you know, and it was um, it took me a long time to like take comfort in that. Run, 
Tegan and Sarah, you're coming up on 20 years of music and <laughs> you're actually going back to the songs that you wrote in high school mm-hmm. and putting an, al- an album called Hey, I'm Just Like You, which is, is it you re-recording songs that you wrote when you were teenagers or rewriting them? What has that process been like? Yeah, I mean, you you nailed it. I mean, we re-recorded and rewrote a lot of the songs that we wrote in high school. Um, we we sort of set like parameters for ourselves because we wanted to be able to like obviously be artistic and use the skills that we've built over the last twenty years. Like we, we wanted it to be a modern sound. Yeah, we right. didn't. We did. There was we weren't trying to be like we go back in a time machine to nineteen ninety six. Like we knew that we wanted the music to be able to sort of like have some oxygen and you know we've we've learned a lot of things and we've 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 gotten better. You know we're, we're doing for 20 years but we also wanted to like really honor like young Tegan and Sarah like I didn't want to I didn't want to snuff out some of their instincts because they were so raw and joyful and you know there was actually quite a lot of like the, a lot of the things that we were doing were really sophisticated and they were sort of just instinct you know they were like um, we were just like trying it out and we were breaking a lot of rules that now you know, we wouldn't, you know, we, we would, we're, we're sort of like super trained now of like how to, how to make songs and how to make things work. And, um, and there was just like so much, um, there was so much passion on those, those early demos that we, we, we were sort of like, I don't know, just like really inspired by. So the album is definitely like, it sounds like a modern Tegan and Sarah record, but it is all, I mean, the vast majority of it, um, specifically lyrics and melodies, um, are, are from the 1990s and it's, it does speak to to queerness and love and that's sort of like inner turmoil that a lot of us have around our identity and who we are and what you know what our what our bodies are and what our bodies want and what our minds are and what they want and um, it, I don't know it just it was a really cool experiment to, to work with that material were there parts of that process that were uncomfortable because I know when I reread things that I wrote <laughs> in high school like yeah. whether it's a diary entry but especially songs like mm-hmm. was there parts of that that was kind of painful or really embarrassing I don't think humiliating yeah I don't think it was painful but there was I mean we were some of it is pretty like, bad like Sarah said we were we tried to honor and and not not destroy or disrupt things that existed that were good uh, but you know a lot of the tape was a lot of the tapes and songs were inaudible and we did have to correct some things and we did have to change some things and some of the lyrics were nonsensical and some were influenced by copious amounts of LSD so we did have to like straighten it out a little bit <laughs> Um, but, you know, I mean, this is part of why we were so interested, not just in writing a memoir about our adolescence, but also uh, revisiting this music and putting it out in, you know, 2019 as modern Tegan and Sarah. It's because we want to challenge this idea that when you're young, that you're an idiot or that you haven't learned anything or you don't know anything. I disagree with that. I think some people maybe at that age don't know who they are and, and struggle to have find their voice and, and, and their focus. And that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But I think Sarah and I had really established who we were. I think we were forced to figure ourselves out and answer a lot of big questions about ourselves when we were young. And I think the music that we wrote stands up today. I think the things that we were asking ourselves back then, I would n- I would be afraid to even ask myself now. And I think that as women and as queer women, we felt the need to 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 release all of these stories and these songs into the world to sort of prove that we were sort of treated like we were silly and maybe marginalized a bit as young people like people would acknowledge yes like 
you're talented. There is something special about what you're doing. And in 10 years, you'll be able to write great songs. But that didn't make sense in, in what happened. We got offered a record deal when we were still in high school. I mean, why would have anyone offered us a record deal or started to flock to us if we weren't actually talented? And I think over the last 20 years, we've continued to tell that incorrect narrative. We've sort of said, oh, well, we were silly and sweet and we were in this punk band and it was kind of ridiculous and throwaway, but we got signed to Neil Young's record label. Like, whatever. You know, it took us a while to figure out what we were doing. And it's like, I think for us, we wanted to go back and say, wait a second. We did know what we were talking about. We did have this kind of uncanny ability to write songs and to write lyrics that really resonated with adults. Is and there is there a, an example of something you wrote that you read today and you're like, wow, this still holds up? I mean, the whole record, I'm like, what were yeah. we thinking? Like it was, <laughs> But I mean, there were definitely specific lines for sure. I mean, you know, we reference Hello, I'm Right Here um, a lot. You know, there's a line about uh, Sarah sings, I, right now I wish I was older. And there's just something so simple about that line, but the idea that, you know, we were being offered a record deal, we were getting all this attention, all these adults were flocking to us and saying, well, you've got something special. And this idea that we were both deeply, deeply, deeply confused about what would come next and that, and yet we had this insight, we had this ability to say, if I, when I'm older, I will have the answers. And so I wish I was that person right now. And how elevated in, Sarah, in thinking Sarah was at that age. There was already this idea, this spark. I think we knew what we were going to go on to do. I, well, I think on some level we we felt compelled to do it. I love that. That intuition is there for a lot of people. I think mm-hmm. like we sort of stray away from it, but we, it's there for a lot of people. Yeah. And when you find your way back to that, I think sometimes when people are sort of in this moment of being lost or not knowing what to do, if you go back and you visit those years and you find <laughs> that passion and where it was, it's sort yeah. of like, yeah, it was there all along also constantly told that you know when you're young those dreams and those desires like you haven't you haven't fallen in line yet with the system and the man or whatever and it's like i don't i was actually just thinking about i don't know if billy eilish is like yeah at the top of your minds right now but i think about her i think about billy eilish a lot because (laughs) i cannot believe that like every time someone like a billy eilish comes along and sort of like rearranges everything i mean she just like she inspires something she provokes something and and she's just so young and 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 it always shocks me but then i think to myself like history has been changed by youth over and over and over again and there's something so brave and profound about um you know sort of like just coming into the world and having a lot to say and not being self-conscious about it and you know i i i i look back at my younger self and i am totally embarrassed by things that i said and did and I wish I'd gotten a haircut or just like had a friend who was like please thin that out but like I also um, I, I, I haven't had very much love for that version of myself for like 20 years and it sounds like very like therapy talk, but like it was writing the memoir was kind of like going and like hanging out with that person and and giving them some love and care and attention. And it healed something for me to do that, not to feel like every time I look at a picture of myself when I'm 17, I, instead of thinking like, ew, or gross or whatever I used to think. Instead, I think like, man, there I am. Like, I'm there I am. I'm still the same person. And I just want to like give that person a hug. Thank you both so much. Thank you so okay. much. Yes, we're coming. We're coming through in, I believe, October. So we'd love to have you at the show. Yeah, would, you, yeah. would you like to come? Oh my okay. god, I'm there. It's There's booked. No question. I can't wait. Bye. 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 Tegan and Sarah. Their new memoir, High School, is out next week, September 24th. Their new album, Hey, I'm Just Like You, comes out a few days later on September 27th. 
make sure to check them out. It's 20 years of Tegan and Sarah. This is amazing. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? Trina, I saw on Instagram that you have a new obsession. It's an obsession, and it's also the birth slash discovery of a new queer icon. <laughs> I know you almost <laughs> spit your water. Who is Her she? Her name is Deborah. She's 57 years old. She is a visual artist from New York, and she is currently on the Netflix show, and it's a Canadian-produced show, and it has a very Canadian vibe. It's called Blown away. Okay, was, what does that even mean, okay. having a Canadian vibe? It, there's a, first of all, there's a French-Canadian contestant. Oh, great. Which is amazing. Okay. And there's just not a whole lot of bells and whistles. Like, it's a okay. competition show, and it's about glass blowers and people making... <laughs> what? Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's a competition show about glass blowers. It's very straightforward. It's like a crew. There's only 10 contestants. Right. Um, highly skilled. They make sculptures and um, objects out of glass. And it's really intense because all of the glass work is done with like fire. And they have like these like fireballs of glass at the end of this little stick. They're like blowing through it. And it's like, I'm terrified of fire. And I'm just like, (laughs) there's a lot of fire. Um, And there's also a lot of blowing glass puns. Um, so every episode has a challenge okay. and the winner of the challenge is crowned best in blow. <laughs> okay. There's a and sexual that's how innuendo. you know it's Canadian because right. they don't even know that there's innuendo there. Oh, right. Um, that's so how you know Deborah is one of 10 contestants. Exactly. And she is the most offbeat. Oh, so she is a queer identifying woman. I kind just of, picture her as wearing like big flowy. No, it's more like striped shirts and like little okay. jackets and thick framed glasses. Oh. And she reminds me a lot of my visual arts teacher at Dawson, Dr. Janice <laughs> Flood Turner. Um, also a queer icon. Some Dawson students might disagree. Um, because, you know, in the visual arts, there's just that stereotype. That's exactly of, like, what I'm picturing. Especially of the more mature woman female mm-hmm. artist in the arts it's a very specific thing and but, deborah but is these that women thing. are so important to to younger queer people they are and what They're i love so about important. deborah is that like she goes into this competition with this like mission to like really bring her queerness to the table to the glass blowing to the glass what does that blowing. even mean a lot of her work is centered around challenging gender stereotypes and gender norms <laughs> through glass. It's pretty impressive. How does she do that? Oh, uh, well, I don't want to give away too much. Okay. Um, but you just have to watch it. But okay. trust me, her work is very queer. It's very feminist. And you have to think, too, that it's happening in this context where most of the people in this industry are men. Surprise, like every industry. Okay, okay. It's it's a field of work that is really male dominated. And what's re- what I really loved about the show, and I think what really drives the show, 
um, is that there's this conflict that emerges between her and this like straight white man who's also about the same age as her, um, you know, who's had a lot of success in the industry. And he has like the, the tech- industry. The- <laughs> it's an industry, I'm okay? Dis- I'm just discovering this world right now. You're going to love it. I'm Trust blown me. away. <laughs> You're going to love it. So they have this this competition. Yes. And her rival early on is this man. Like, right. they don't get along. She, at one point, is, like, yelling at one of her assistants. Not in a mean way, but just, like, in the, she's very, she gets very intense. Right. And he's like, stop yelling, Deborah. And he like, he really does not like Deborah. And she really does not like him. And so watching that tension unfold is riveting. The show ultimately ends up being this rivalry that I think, you know, on a micro level is between Deborah and whatever his name is. But on a macro level, it's about the female artist versus the male technician. And that <laughs> is like a battle that, that I am <laughs> obsessed with. Grouping all men together. You just love that. I love it, especially <laughs> when they're annihilated. But no spoilers. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to watch. Just watch. Blown away. It's on Netflix. You'll be blown away. I promise. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter, with Crystal Duhame. Crystal also edits and mixes the show. Our talent producer on this episode was Catherine Stockhausen. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts, and Arif Narani is the executive producer. All right, we have an urgent message for you. This Saturday, September 21st, Thomas and I are going to be in Toronto. We're doing a live recording of Chosen Family as part of JFL 42. It's going to be so much fun. Please come join us. There will be comedy. There will be an interview. Yeah, we'll even hang out with you after the show. Like, if you want to come grab a bite to eat with us after, like, I'm totally down for that. Whatever you want, I will give you. Just come to the show. For more info on how to buy your tickets and passes, join our Facebook group. We'll have all the information there. Just go on Facebook, search Chosen Family. You can't miss it. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.